After handing over the dossier of his life and crimes to the woman he'd really like to impress, originally intended to seduce, the man commonly known as Jimmy Keen is sitting on her front porch. He is fully, completely, acutely aware that he's basically facing the death of his persona for the second time in his life. And all of that considered, he's pretty calm. He spent time in administrative segregation in prison, so he's got himself together. He can handle himself a little bit. He'd found a pack of cigarettes sitting on the table on Caroline's porch, cracked one out, started smoking it. We didn't have those in the hole. <laughs> He's looking at his hands. They're shaking. He'd never seen the death chamber at Angola prison in person, but he imagines himself in his prison blues walking down the corridor towards it, also very stoic and resigned, to a degree that some might consider impressive. But he's not impressed. He's aware that he's just kind of given up. If this is it, then this is it. I've waited long enough. If it's over, now it's over. I don't think they give you a second identity. I mean, once they give you a new one, one time, I think it's like one and done. And if you fuck it up, you fuck it up, you're on your own, I don't know. If after all that, this is how I go out, then I deserved it. He has a vision of himself as a younger man, in his early 20s, in a hospital bed. He can see it as if from outside his body. It's not immediately visibly clear why he's hospitalized, but there could be a number of reasons. He looks rough. His expression is totally dejected, more or less unfocused, very barely present, although at least a little bit because he doesn't want to be. A slightly older man with a very impressive handlebar mustache is sitting in a chair beside him. Mustache man says, It's all right. You can go on and have a life now. Young Jimmy is just staring at the void. He hears his own voice, very small and plaintive, as if from far away, replying, What if I don't want it? Meanwhile, inside, Caroline Hebert Guidry is left alone with what I had described as a manila folder, but that's not entirely adequate. It's one of the accordion-style folders that can expand to hold a great volume of paperwork, and this one is not too skinny. The tab at top is labeled Keen, comma, James D. Jr. 
And although she has a pretty decent idea of what's inside, given that he just told her, she still doesn't really want to touch it because touching it would make it more real. She buttons her housecoat over her t-shirt, thinking, I don't want to look at this with my titties out. It's just an instinct to me. She's sitting cross-legged on her bed, looking at the folder, but then she seizes courage, reaches out, opens it, and the first bit of paperwork in the first pocket closest to the front is exactly what Jimmy had described, the criminal jacket of James D. Keene Jr., And as she starts to look through it, she sees that it's exactly what he told her. For various reasons, she has familiarity with criminal codes, and none of this is especially surprising. Possession of an unlawful substance. Possession with the intent to distribute. Numerous counts of possession of unauthorized firearms. Again, multiple counts of smuggling said firearms. Possession with intent to distribute them. Numerous counts of fraud, money laundering, and her favorite, racketeering. Aiding and abetting. Conspiracy to commit assault with a deadly weapon. But nothing about actual murder, or technically about Jimmy himself committing a bodily crime against another person. Caroline's just trying to look at it all with a completely open mind. She sees Jimmy's mugshot and then his booking photo for the prison. In the former, his facial expression reads, absolutely, I got this. And in the latter, you got me. I don't got this. There is paperwork about his sentencing, which, um, each individual charge and the years he had been sentenced in relation to it are listed, and it's a fairly long list. She sees paperwork about his processing into the prison in Missouri that he referred to as a summer camp and paperwork about his transfer to Angola. Then, paperwork about the commutation of his sentence, and the fact that he was released early due to having done a favor for the FBI. She sees that the felony counts had been expunged from his official record. It's everything that he'd already told her about himself. Then she pulls out the next chronological bit. And this is a little different. It's photocopies of newspaper clippings from the LA Times of 1987. She reads it silently to herself. Star Witness recounts grisly details of famed killing. Suddenly she finds herself reading about the testimony of some young guy against some other young guy involved in a criminal syndicate. 
Carney, 22, wore a bulletproof vest when taking the stand against his former best friend. Hunt, 24, sat impassively, occasionally writing on a notepad, while his former lieutenant gave details of the murder plot involving Ronald G. Levin of Beverly Hills. After eight hours of concise but frequently emotional testimony, court adjourned. Defense counsel Arthur Behrens had called to the stand Hunt's girlfriend, Sidney Brooke Roberts, 19, who recited a litany of sordid details about the relationship between Hunt and Carney and her own relationships with both men in a blatant bid to discredit Carney. Hunt is slated to take the stand in his own defense tomorrow. What in the fuck? All right. Then there's another photocopy of the LA Times front page proclaiming infamous BBC killer found guilty at trial. Joseph Henry Hunt of Los Angeles was found guilty today in the murder of Ronald G. Levin and was sentenced to life imprisonment. Fuck me running. Well, good, I guess. Look at that smug-ass face. Accused and just found guilty of a murder and his expression is like, Oh, well. Looks like a shithead. What in the fuck is this all about? The next bit of paperwork goes a bit towards clarifying that. Again, for various reasons, Caroline has had previous occasion to review paperwork about a person's change of legal name and identity. Back in the day, it was considerably easier than it is today, and people used to do it not infrequently. But still, this type of thing doesn't come along every day. And Caroline has certainly never had occasion to lay eyes on what she's looking at now. She's seen name changes, forms where someone has assumed the identity of someone else who had previously been alive, but never one that was stamped with the seal of the federal government. It sinks in like cold rain, that the man she's come to like, respect, and admire used to be known under a different name altogether, but that person no longer exists, and the United States of America had overseen his transformation into someone else. The paperwork details how the identity of James D. Keene Jr., had been taken over nearly 13 years previously by one Dean Carney. There's pictures of both of them and everything. It's all fairly straightforward, but Caroline still has a rather difficult time wrapping her mind around it. Jimmy, you sly fox. Who in the hell are you? She looks at the pictures. They look about the same to her. They look like the same man, wearing different facial expressions, 
like Jimmy's booking photo and mugshot, but one is Carney and the other Keen. She looks at their faces, his face, their face, the faces, and it dawns upon her that whatever the paper in front of her says his name is, she ultimately doesn't question who he is. Caroline feels as though she's seen everything she really needed to see. She puts the paperwork down in a pile. There are a couple of piles now. Gets up. Walks to the door of the porch. A gallery, as they call it in the South. Opens it. Sees the man she's always thought of as Jimmy. Sitting there with his cigarette. He looks up at her. And his expression is a lot of things at one time. Hopeful. A little imploring. At the same time, composed. Calm. She feels he is comporting himself utmost dignity. Hey. Hey. She joins him at the little table, sitting in the chair just opposite from him. You suppose I could have a drag off of that, please? Yeah, sure, I stole it out of your pack. You didn't steal it. You can have it. Thanks. You better take it away from me anyway. I, I always forget how much I hate these things. She takes it from him. His hands are still shaking, but less than they had been. Her hands are shaking a bit now, too. You know, I don't really love him myself. I like to keep him around for the comfort of it, I guess, in case I feel like I need one. And I picked up the habit inside, and then I kicked it for a minute when I got out, but then I started all over again. I'm trying to kick it a second time. But you already know that. Yeah. Yeah, I seem to recall you told me that before. James now does not know what to do with his hands, so he clasps them in front of himself, leaning forward with his elbows on his knees, looking at Caroline contemplatively, soulfully, they're staring at one another directly in the eyes. He has completely forgotten what he had been thinking about, deciding that maybe he might say, just waiting for her to say something instead. And he thinks it'll be something like, well, it's been nice, but... However... When he studies her as she's smoking, her expression isn't fundamentally different than the one he's seen on her face most of the time that she's looked at him. She smiles a bit, and he thinks it's rather cryptic. But then he thinks 
She just looks fascinated. Like she's seen a rare creature in the wild. So did you, uh, did you read all that? Well, I don't think all that. I think I probably skipped a couple parts, but... You want to talk about it? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, because I just... I got a couple questions. Yeah, yeah. I figure that you, that you, that you would. Okay. So whenever you're ready, you want to go on back inside? Yeah, yes. At your service, whenever you're ready. Okay, well, I might be ready right now. Okay. All right, yes, me too. But when he goes to stand up, his knees belie that statement a little bit. He's trembling. Caroline stabs out the cigarette. Grinds it out in the ashtray. She smiles at him, warm and friendly. He allows her to get to the door first. Open it up. And he doesn't know how he might describe the difference in the look on her face. Something is new there. But it's not distrustful or unwelcoming disapproving or in any other way negative in a way he could identify come on in I, I can't wait 